Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. Hello, Shuo. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've been really excited to speak with you and have wanted to ask you to join the podcast ever since you gave a riveting just overview of your work and your career journey to our group of students last May. And ever since then, I was just thinking in the back of my mind, I got to get you on this podcast. You, you are very kind. Thank you for the kind words. And before we get started and dive into the questions, could you tell us a little bit about your career journey and how you got to your current role as a partner at Lower Carbon? Yeah. I think the more interesting way to put it is, I, I think I have a very hard time believing that I am deserving of love and affection. And so that dark ball of energy has pushed me to do things that perhaps other people wouldn't do. I've always wanted to make a larger impact on the world in a positive way. Uh, I spent pretty much my entire professional career trying to answer one basic question, which is, where is that special spot in the universe that can channel all this like energy I have and, and hopefully even magnify it to make the most positive good for the universe as possible. For many years, the answer was go to weird places and unsexy industries and start businesses that only you can start. And yeah, I was an entrepreneur for several years, but ultimately I, I left that phase of my life feeling a little bit disappointed. I think partially because I realized that that wasn't the best way to really create the impact I wanted, but also that I had pinned a lot of personal hopes on being successful as an entrepreneur that because I grew up poor, if I could find some financial success or stability, I'd finally get the monkey off my back. But it doesn't quite work that way. And adventure really became the calling for me to 10x, 100x, just really magnify what I've been doing up to that point to a whole other level. You know, being able to work with hundreds, if not thousands of great founders, fighting at the front lines, solving the world's biggest problems. That's what really energizes and motivates me today. And how did the opportunity to work at Lower Carbon come about? I'd had the benefit of working with Chris and Clay and, and many of the people on the lower carbon team for a couple of years already. At my previous fund, I, I loved looking at climate. And anytime I'd find anything interesting, I'd of course send it over to them. We, we had this history of, of co-investing together. And doing more general deep tech, high impact investing, it filled me with tremendous optimism. The cool thing about that job is you, you take a sneak peek at the pipeline of the entire collection of human civilizations, technologies that are all coming out within the next generation or two. And I, I realized if we could just hold our shit together for our next generation or two, we have the solutions on deck, right? Treatments for cancer and longevity and education. And we're on the cusp of being able to build a much better and fairer and, and, and more democratic civilization. But there are these 
couple of things that could destabilize the whole thing and create this almost like fall of Rome situation. And I, I really wanted to make sure I was aligned at trying to solve those problems as much as I could. And in several of these, I don't have any particular special powers or superpowers to be able to do something. But I, I think in climate and specifically early stage climate investing, that is an area where I can apply my own gifts and hopefully do something meaningful. Amazing. And that actually translates well into my next question. I'm curious to get your perspective on what you look for in early stage entrepreneurs. And you mentioned that is one of your superpowers to be able (laughs) to identify highly impactful potential investments at a stage when, at least from my understanding, a lot of these companies are just getting started out and haven't fully validated or made a significant amount of sales, but I could be wrong. No, no. It's it's 100% that, right? Like in the early stages of a business, it's exciting. It's it's exciting because the, the founders could get up one morning and find this like delicious, perfectly crispy croissant and it, it blows their mind and all of a sudden inspiration hits and aha, there's this new strategy and the business strategy and the product itself can completely change within a matter of minutes. That's just kind of how it's supposed to be. But but the implication is also that there's no real company, there's no real business plan or strategy or go-to-market or, or really any of these things. And I think the great early stage investors realize that they're not really there to invest in companies, so to speak. They're there to really back founders. The founders themselves are the only consistent thing at that stage of the business. And I'm just so curious about people and so curious about understanding why can some people do the near impossible, right? How do you find the modern day Marie Curie or Alexander the Great? And it's it's interesting from a, from a meta sense being an investor because different human beings have different sensitivities to different aspects of this. And I am sensitive to a particular kind of individual, oftentimes the ones that are similar to myself in in nature and and background, right? To to kind of put it bluntly, these are the kinds of people that probably had some kind of fucked up trauma growing up that they have somehow internalized in a, a somewhat positive way that forces them, almost compels them to do the impossible. And they've connected so much of themselves and and, and their ego into doing these things and and their self-worth that they're almost unstoppable. I think the subtle difference, and maybe it shouldn't be a subtle difference, but like the real difference that I'm trying to really put out there in the universe is for most of human civilization, we've taken people with like childhood trauma and and recognized their ability to do unique things and, and just kind of exploited them. We don't really care for their actual identity as human beings. And I think that's why you get a lot of like kind of like messed up CEOs and founders who they might do really, really impressive things on a business front. But I, I sometimes question how happy they are as human beings. I'd like to do more than that, right? It's not just that these people can create really meaningful businesses, but perhaps through this process, they can also learn and, and earn a degree of like peace within themselves. I think that's the ultimate goal. I'm sure it varies, but in general, what does your dynamic look like with the founders in terms of like how you communicate? Yeah. There's some of the things that they yeah. come to you for. Yeah. It varies a lot. I think especially in this job, and, and I warn founders about this all the time, to be extremely wary of people who give hand-wavy general answers to their questions. Because there's no greater indicator that that person doesn't know what they're talking about, right? Because I think anyone who's done this for a long period of time realizes how specific and personal this has to be. The consistent things are about really engineering that safe space in that unique way with the founder, right? Ultimately, what you're trying to get to is a degree of trust that is rarely obtained, 
right? The battle that is being fought constantly between founders and investors is that it's a dynamic fundamentally built on attention. You don't quite feel good about telling your investors everything because they're kind of judging you in some level, right? You run into some issues and you're like, ah, fuck, I, I got to beg this person for money at some point. Like, I'm, I'm just going to skip over this. And, and the result of that is investors oftentimes don't understand what the really, truly meaningful areas of help are. It's no different than like, you know, my son goes to school and I pick him up every day and I ask him, hey, what did you do in school? And he's like, now then, it takes like a labor of love to draw out my son so he actually tells me about his day because that kind of father-son dynamic is he constantly feels like I'm judging him or he has to live up to some some standard I'm posing on him. And I have to learn how to be better about that. And for founders, it's, it's very much the same dynamic. Can I create a channel, a really improbable, almost in, irrational channel for the founders to tell me what's actually wrong, what they're actually scared of, what they actually believe they cannot do, especially the existential stuff that makes them feel like the company might fail. And if I can't uncover that, then then I have failed at my mission. But it's all about developing that kind of relationship in the early days. And the specifics of are what makes the job interesting. How do you generally approach that aspect of building trust with the founder in the early stages? <laughs> uh, how do we do that? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's obviously different for different folks. But, <laughs> but generally, I think it's important to come at most things with a degree of compassion and understanding and, and listening. I do not in any way believe that I have some superpowered intellect or understanding or, or knowledge, right? I am just a, a completely soft pillow, receptive of whatever people want to put on me. And I think it's important in the early days to just make sure that's felt. There's a high degree of trust that's involved in doing that as well. I think for founders, especially, you're always fighting against this this assumption early on that I think investors tend to be time wasters and will try almost in an overzealous way to send you a bunch of stuff, but none of that stuff is ultimately meaningful, right? Engendering that trust means that I'd rather communicate with the founder less, not more, but have every single one of those interactions be super sharp and super meaningful so that they can believe that anytime I reach out to them with something, it's thoughtful and intentional and it's worth that very, very precious two to three minutes of their time. And just even conveying that kind of deeper empathy and the fact that I have been a founder before that we can kind of connect on level. I think that helps. Thank you. That was really interesting and helpful. And it seems like just given that you're approaching it from that mentality already in a way probably facilitates some level of trust between you and the founder, at least from the founder's perspective. And as someone who is in the process of founding a company it's really satisfying and like in a way validating to hear a VC investor thinking about these things as they're engaging in their sourcing and <laughs> process. Well, but being a founder kind of sucks in, in many ways, right? It's lonely. It's hard to communicate what you're actually going through. Your ego is constantly on the line. And on top of that, the nature of the job is you're constantly forced to run through walls, right? Like no day do you wake up and all of a sudden get to run downhill. It's rare, right? It's like, ah, here's this like stupidly thick steel wall. And, uh, you know, just, just keep on banging your head into it until it comes out. And it's, it's, it's taxing and it's draining and, you know, being able to re-energize founders in a specific way. I, I think there is some kind of like magic and specialness to that, right? I mean, and, and that's why the most formidable founders, they, they have this charisma and they have this energy. It, it's almost this kind of dynamic 
ever filling well that they can come back to. And it gives them that core ability that makes founders unique, right? Can they convince people to do irrational things? Can they convince people to join their team and for investors to give them money? It's all, it's all from this like wellspring of energy that constantly has to be maintained. That makes a lot of sense. And can you walk us through what the investment process looks like? <laughs> I mean, it's, I have the privilege of meeting very, very interesting people, right? And occasionally there's that perfect overlap of the right kind of personality and energy and charisma plus their focus and zeal aligns on a climate solution or problem that I find really, really compelling. The, the first process is typically to have 30 to 40 minute, 45 minute chat and to really make that a two-way conversation. We're really discovering each other as people, making sure that if this ends up being a eight to 10 year journey, that it's a journey that we're both excited to go on because that human element is so important. I mean, like we're not talking about some software company that they're going to flip in two years, right? This is this is a long term relationship. It's like it's like riding in a van with someone for like a decade. You better love that person, otherwise, it's a very awkward van ride. Once that kind of foundation established, then and and only then do I start to get curious about the business and the technology to, to make sure it kind of makes sense. And, and I think that part of the diligence process for me is largely focused on a kind of a core question, right? What, what's the probability the technology works? We, we play in a space where we're very lucky in that I think market risk is fairly easy to understand. If most, most of the companies are making a replacement good, so like clearly the market exists. So it's only about like, okay, is, is it cheaper, faster, better in some specific way? And if it is, well, we can be pretty much assured people are going to buy it, right? In, in the best case scenario, it's like a, it's a cure for cancer, right? You, you don't really have to worry about the market risk for a cure for cancer. And then we try to be able to quantify what the technical risk really is. How do you make a distinction between a technology that has a one in 50 chance of succeeding versus a technology that has a one in 10? one in 15, or one in 20 chance of succeeding. And if that technology is successful, and that there is minimal market risk, how big could that market be? We're very, very lucky to get to place and support multiple teams across a portfolio. And so being able to back 30, 40, maybe sometimes even 50 founders in a portfolio means that if I find a technology that has a one in 15 chance of working, it could be a multi-billion dollar market with very little market risk, I, I write that check every day of the week, right? And that whole discovery and journey process is, is very, very exciting. The part that I feel like should be emphasized and oftentimes people miss is it's always a two-way street. The process of diligence by an investor should also be additive to the founder. You put all this time and gathering this information and understanding the markets and sometimes even coming at it from a direction that the founders may not consider, how much of that can you feed back into the founder to make them better at what they're doing? Because, you know, again, we're, we're wrong nine times out of 10. If, if I can make the process useful and enrich the founder with something that he or she can go off and do something incredible, right? It's important that that process be additive and focus on that as well. Speaking of the technology, are there any particular tech verticals within the climate field that you're currently bullish on? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time answering questions like this because I, I'm very, very mediocre at doing technical diligence, right? I'm pretty mediocre at doing diligence overall. I mostly come at this from a personal perspective, right? I almost try consciously not to bring any of these biases into the conversation because especially when you're on the frontiers of technology, things just don't work until all of a sudden they do. In a way, any of my biases might shut the door on something that could be the, the new big thing. And so I, I try to go into those conversations with, with as blank of a mind as possible, which for me isn't hard because I'm not that bright. And 
yeah, so the answer is no. I, I guess I should say I don't really have any specific technology that I'm excited about. Well, how do you go about evaluating the risks on maybe not just the technical side, but mm-hmm. in general? For example, I know the Inflation Reduction Act yeah. provided a pretty big tailwind for the mm-hmm. industry. Yeah. Of course, there's some political risk around that. And would just love to hear your perspective around like how you think about those types of things. Yeah. I mean, obviously, these are going to be very, very specific depending on the kind of risks that we're talking about, right? Government and, and policy level decisions. How much information can you get? When can you get that information versus other people? Can you feel out bits of like secrets from the universe? I, I think the more underlying answer to your question is, as an investor doing this, part of the job is you're constantly digging for this buried treasure, right? The things that you believe you understand that other people don't. And that could be on the regulatory side. That could be in terms of the technology scaling side, right? Some problem that people think is unsolvable, but you believe with enough engineering dollars can be overcome. And you're constantly on the outlook for this stuff. And, and different people will gather the information and synthesize it and come from different perspectives. And it, it's just part of being out there and absorbing it. I think I, I struggle to articulate how exactly I personally synthesize it in order to get a feeling around it. Because for me, I'll oftentimes it just turns into this kind of feeling on the inside. I, I have a sense that like this particular technology won't be enough of a delta to drive large-scale investment in, right? Like, no, okay, fine, maybe jet fuel is $2 right now. At what point is it cheap enough to justify someone funding an $80 million new CapEx steel-in-the-ground plant? Is $1.80 enough? Is it $1.75? And some of that stuff is just collections of experiences and talking to different people to feel that stuff out. But I think it's why going deep and having the experience in some of these verticals gives you that feel over time. Got it. And again, another question that I'm not sure if you could provide like a very specific answer to because I'm sure it probably varies across. But could you provide some sense of the average time frame it takes for you to ultimately meet an entrepreneur to cutting the investment and like (laughs) how long does the diligence usually take yeah i'll try to give you a helpful general answer right i think super early stage stuff like pre-seed and seed i'd like to say that at best i can get to final decision within 10 business days right understanding the founder really getting a sense of the technology and the product and it's, it's the nature of it is because like you know it's still early and most of the work I do is just really understanding the founder and the potential pathway to how this kind of scales up. Once it gets a little bit later stage, it can be more tricky, right? And that's why a lot of times making the decision on doubling down on founders, reinvestment, or a follow-on round, those can take actually a fairly long period of time because it's complicated now, right? You can actually have to go and do many, many reference calls with customers and really understand the technology trajectory and velocity and what that stuff means. Those can take maybe if it's not like you know two weeks, yeah, three or four to really wrap your head around sometimes. Got it. And I know a lot of people who are really interested in entering the climate tech yeah. investment field and the VC landscape. Do you have any advice for people who are looking to break into the field? What are the skills that you look out for? The work can be very miserable. So I think my first question for anyone that wants to really do this is, is to ask them why they really want to do it, right? There are easier ways to make a good living. So you either have to be extremely mission-driven or have some other aspect of it 
it's an extremely sharp field in that I think very few people get to do the work at a very, very high level. What do you imagine your superpowers are? Like what makes you significantly better than most people at a certain thing? And, and how do you see that translating to venture and climate specifically? Because ultimately, those are the folks that are going to be able to succeed doing this. It's brutal because being in a power law industry means that almost by definition, 90% of my peers don't know what they're doing. And it's, it's a harsh thing to say, but I, I 100% believe that. Investors love to, to say those statistics to founders. You know, yeah, nine out of 10 companies will fail, but they don't really look at themselves in the mirror and realize, hey, unless I'm super focused, I'm going to be in the 90% of investors that are actually helpful, that are no more than commoditized dollars. You have to have a really intentional plan on how you want to get there in, in order to do the job well, right? It's less dramatic than I'm making a sound, right? The, the good thing is you can dip your feet in, you know, find a good firm, learn the craft, and really understand how you want to practice this craft. Part of it is understanding that venture, part of the reason it's difficult is most firms don't do a good job preparing people to succeed in venture. Despite how it's oftentimes framed, this is not like investment banking. It's not like other kinds of financial jobs. I think the job has more similarities with things like being a blacksmith or a carpenter. You're, you're learning craftsmanship that is best fostered in a deep apprenticeship model. But that's hard to find. So I, I would advise people to say, if you have mentors in this space or people that you really resonate with you, who can you connect to? Who can you find to like take you under their wing and really learn the craft and then figure out whether you actually have a passion for it? That will lead to, I think, a healthier process and ultimately happiness in the long term. Final question. It's a two-part question. Yeah. Reflecting on your incredible career, is there any piece of advice that you would give to your 25-year-old self? Yeah. And part B, your 35-year-old self. Well, I tell my 25-year-old self to sign a prenup. That, that, that'd be good advice. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I liked a lot what I was doing at 25. I think whether, it, whether I made the right decisions or the wrong decisions, even the wrong decisions were foundational in, in me becoming who I am. So I, I, I'd be really, really scared to say anything to that person and kind of change the trajectory of mine, right? Like, it's been a beautiful, blessed journey. I feel really, really grateful. 35, thankfully, was, was only a couple of years ago. So I, I think I have a lot to say to that person. The recent challenges of my career have largely been around harmony, uh, harmonizing the, the home and personal aspects of my life with the, the professional aspects of my life, right? And, and, and how, to be, how to be a great father and how to still do my job in a world-class way. And I, I, you know, I've, I've learned some lessons in a very, very hard way over the last couple of years that I, I wish I could fast track a little bit with the 35-year-old me. So I, you know, rather than professional advice, a lot of it would probably be focused on how to be present with the kids, how to be more compassionate first to myself. So I have more compassion and capacity to be more compassionate for my kids as well. So yeah, sorry, that, that's probably an unsatisfying answer for you, but that, that, that's, that's the No, reality. it's great. It's great. Thank you so much, Shuo. Seriously. Of course. Really grateful that you took the time here to oh, share all of your incredible insights. This is the stuff that's important, right? Like, I, I don't know how insightful any of this stuff is, but it's very. We, we always have the opportunity to build a more open and transparent civilization. And as people know more about this stuff, it, it's just better. Like, one thing I find personally deeply annoying about venture capital and entrepreneurship is it's it's too opaque, and, and people want to treat VC like this like secret club or something like that. It's fucking bullshit. 
And our, our civilization would be better off if it was demystified and we can do this in a kind of more scalable way. So I'm, I'm always happy to talk. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.